Well, as I told the kids, we're in James 5, so if you have a Bible, turn with me there, or you'll find the text printed in your bulletin. Today we are coming to the final chapter of James, but don't worry, we're not going to go through the whole thing. We're just looking at verses 1 through 12 of James 5. And James 5, 1 through 12 presents some challenging matters with which we need to grapple, uh, but they are as relevant today as when James wrote this letter some almost 2,000 years ago. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and for his help. Gracious God, you've told us that your word is sweeter than honey, that is more precious than silver and gold. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived, in, uh, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Throughout the centuries, the people of God have faced various forms of oppression at different times and in different ways. And at certain times, this has taken the form of extreme persecution. For example, during China's Boxer Rebellion of 1900, insurgents captured a mission station, blocked all the gates except one, and in front of that one placed a cross flat on the ground. Then the word came to those who were inside, a hundred total young people, that anyone who trampled the cross underfoot would be let go and could go free, but any refusing would be shot. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross under their feet and were able to go free. 
But the eighth student, a young girl, refused to commit the sacrilegious act. Kneeling beside the cross in prayer for strength, she rose and moved carefully around the cross and went out to face the firing squad. Strengthened by her example, every one of the remaining 92 students followed her to the firing squad. Talk about serious oppression. And, you know, oppression isn't always that extreme. Christians throughout the years have been made fun of. They've lost their jobs. They've been hurt in other ways. And whether or not we've faced that directly, there are Christians all around the world who have. What are we to make of this? How are we to respond? Well, that's what James is addressing here in his first 12 verses of chapter 5. It's a little bit of of a shift in his letter. The tone, at least especially in verses 1 through 6, is different than what's come before it. He's dealing with a form of injustice. In our society today, the terms oppressors and the oppressed are buzzwords of sorts. Depending on your worldview, these may bring about positive or negative response. But don't worry, I'm not embracing a secular ideology. I'm not talking about things like critical race theory or intersectionality. But what I am saying is that Scripture addresses certain issues. And the concept of oppression is a biblical one. We must not let the culture or secular ideology control the narrative. Instead, we must examine what Scripture says and submit ourselves to the Word of God. In order to understand this, I want us to see how James offers first a rebuke to the oppressors in verses 1 through 6, and then comfort for the oppressed in verses 7 through 12. So first, rebuke for the oppressors. If you were here last week, you'll notice that how James begins this section is the same as how he began the section before, chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you, and then he dives into what he's talking about. Remember, this introductory phrase, come now, is an invitation to examine a worldview, how we think about things, how we approach. And what James is calling us to examine is the abuses of wealth and how that leads, for some, to oppression. Almost immediately, a question arises, to whom is James talking, specifically in verses 1 through 6? You know, it's tempting to think, since James uses the same introduction as 4, 13 to 18, and that was written to believers, then he must be talking to believers here as well. But I don't think that's the case. In 4, 13 to 17, there's the rebuke for planning for the future without taking into consideration God and his will. There's also calls to repentance and change. But here in 5, 1 through 6, we don't find such invitations. The terms weep and howl pick up on Old Testament imagery for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. James is definitive in the way he speaks about these people. So I think it's best to conclude that he's talking to non-believers who are using their wealth in ungodly manners. But that raises another question. Why would James write to unbelievers? Remember, this is a letter written to churches spread across the known world facing persecution. More than likely, unbelievers aren't going to be reading this letter, so why would he address them? Well, somebody said that James is speaking to people who aren't present for the sake of those who are. John Calvin puts it this way. James has regard to the faithful 
that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and rain mind bear them. In other words, the first half of this passage is speaking truth about the wickedness of abuses of money so that those who aren't in that and God's people would not fall into those same sinful practices. So what exactly is James condemning? Is wealth the problem? No, certainly not. We know this because Scripture says that wealth is often a blessing from the Lord. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds, No sorrow with it. Many folks in the Bible, including Job and Abraham, David, Solomon, and Joseph of Arimathea, were very wealthy individuals. Wealth in and of itself is not the problem. From time to time, people will attack the church and Christians and accuse us of being hypocrites. And sometimes that's appropriate. We can certainly be hypocritical. But sometimes those accusations are false. And I came across this particular claim a while back. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's a statement if Money is the root of all evil. Why does the church ask for your money? What's the problem with that? Money is not the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the problem. The love of money is. And that can lead to all sorts of other sins. And that's what we see here in this first half of our passage. James is saying that these rich unbelievers have their miseries, and his miseries are coming for them. He says that their riches have rotted, their garments are moth-eaten. Sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew 6, 19, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. James goes on in verse 3 to say that their gold and silver have corroded, rusted, well, that's interesting because what do we know about gold and silver? They don't rust. So is James kind of uh, a first century person who wasn't well informed, didn't know the chemical properties of gold and silver? No, I don't think so. He was a fairly educated man. No, he's making a pointed statement. He's saying, look, the things that seem like they will last forever, that will give you benefit all your life, have already maximized their potential already starting to fade away. They're not giving you what they promised. We see the first main issue for these wealthy people at the end of verse 3. James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, they are greedy and hoarding money and possessions for themselves. They've earned money, and as we'll see in a few minutes, they've even stolen money, and now they're just keeping it for themselves, collecting more and more. Since we're to learn from this warning, what does this have to say to us? Well, we too can be greedy with our wealth if we're not careful. We can store up in our savings accounts and our retirement funds, and if we're not careful, we can end up hoarding for ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't plan for the future, that we shouldn't save for retirement. No, we need to be good stewards but there's a temptation to over-accumulate, thinking, I'm just going to make sure I'm well off later, when in reality we're just being greedy, and we are hoarding for ourselves. This mindset can make us stingy, 
and unwilling to help those in need. Friends, our wealth is a gift from God, and we're to use it for kingdom purposes. How do you view the money that God has given you, whether you have an abundance or whether you just have a few pennies? Do you think of it as yours or his? Are you using it for the growth of his kingdom? Or are you hoarding it for your own pleasure? The wicked wealthy go from being greedy to then stealing. Look at verse 4. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, at this day and at time, a lot of people who were wealthy were wealthy because they had a lot of land. And in an agrarian society, wealth was often found in crops, produce. And if you had a lot of fields and a lot of crops, then you needed to hire people to help harvest your crops. Landowners would hire day laborers to bring in the harvest. In Leviticus 19.13, we find this command, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. If someone was hired for the day, and they were to be paid at the end of the day, that goes all the way back to early life in Israel. Notice how Moses calls failing to do this a form of oppression. What likely happened is that the landowners would say, yes, I'll pay you this money, but get to the end of the day and say, well, you didn't do it up to my standards, so I'm not going to pay you what I said I'd pay you. Or the wait until the next day. Remember, a lot of these folks were poor. They were relying on this money to be able to have food to eat. Not paying them was a form of oppression. Here in James 5, James is rebuking the wealthy for doing the same thing. Apparently, this practice continued throughout time. And we can think of people today who, you know, take a fee for a job up front and never show up to do the work. Or you can find a contractor who uh, doesn't pay his uh, workers a fair wage or doesn't pay them at all. But for most of us, that doesn't connect with us. That doesn't fit our life circumstances. But if we're not careful, we too can fall into stealing, and sometimes that stealing can lead to oppressing others. Kids or young people, have you ever gone to a restaurant, and you've ordered water, and you go to the drink machine, and you fill it up with soda? What are you doing? You're stealing. Well, the restaurant's not really being oppressed by you doing that, but still, it's wrong. Or those of us as adults, if somebody pays us in cash, do you file that with your taxes? Or, or do you just think, well, the government doesn't know about it. They don't deserve that money anyway. It might not be oppressing the government, but are we not still stealing? The sin of the wealthy continues. In verse 5, James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, because the wealthy have hoarded this money, now they're living luxuriously and self-indulgently, focused all about themselves. Think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The younger son comes to the father and says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance. Basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. (coughs) Not a great way to start, right? But father lovingly gives him that money, and what happens? 
Luke 15, 13, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Friends, if we aren't careful, we too can live luxuriously. While we might not think of ourselves as rich, we are part of the wealthiest people in human history. How might you be living luxuriously and self-indulgently? It's not to say that we can't enjoy the blessings of life, but at times we fall into going overboard if we're not careful. The wicked rich in James' discussion reached a culmination in their behavior in verse 6. It says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We pluck this verse up out of context. It might be tempting to think, well, maybe that's talking about the religious leaders in Jesus condemned and murdered a righteous person. But that doesn't fit what James is talking about. Instead, it seems that he is talking about just a generic term for those who are indeed righteous, but have been oppressed. And if we take that back to what he was saying about the keeping back the, the wages, perhaps if these folks were not paid their money, then they weren't able to live. And maybe for some of them, it cost them their life. Or maybe they weren't paid until they ended up stealing, and then they were thrown into debtor's prison where they rotted away. Friends, whether we realize it or not, wealth can be a problem for us. The fact of the matter is that money can be a major stumbling block in Christian discipleship. It can keep us far from God if we're not careful. Moreover, we can fall into oppressing others if the Holy Spirit does not restrain our sin nature. So here in the first half, we see how James rebukes the wealthy for their abuses and how they've oppressed others. But in the second half, we find how God provides comfort for those who are oppressed. Now, we need to be careful and understand what that means. These folks are literally have been oppressed financially and some religiously and that's a valid consideration. Verses 7 through 12 flesh out how there's comfort to be found and how we're to respond when hard times come. The primary, primary source for this oppression is found in verses 1 through 6. It's what we noted earlier, how some in the church were probably facing financial difficulties because of those who had hired them. Remember the James is writing, <coughs> sorry. James is writing to churches spread around the known world because of persecution. If you are persecuted, you left your job and you fled, and then maybe these folks are getting jobs that aren't the greatest, and these wicked, wealthy people are oppressing them by not paying their wages. And so more than likely, some of the folks being oppressed in verses 1 through 6 are members of the churches to whom James is writing. And so he's telling them, how do you respond when this happens? One of the primary Jewish groups at this time was known as the Zealots. They were very... Um, forceful in their approach, and they often promoted forms of violence in terms of rebelling against those over them. 
And some of the zealots came to faith in Christ, and so they were uh, former zealots in the church, which meant that sometimes there was a temptation to respond to oppression, like we saw in verses 1 through 6, with violence. James is teaching that violence is not the answer to oppression. Whether or not this oppression was actually financial here, or it's just difficulties of life in a broken, fallen, sinful world, James is saying that's not how we respond. Well, look what he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patience? That's the response? I mean, it's tempting to think, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what? That's how we respond? We live in an instant gratification culture. We have access to almost everything at our fingertips. We struggle with patience. We want things, and we want it now, and when it comes to justice. We want it, and we want it now. But James instructs his hearers to be patient. Why? Well, what does he say? He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's reference to the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes riding on the clouds, when he will come to right every wrong, to bring judgment on all the wicked who don't trust in him. James reminds his audience that justice will come on the evildoers. Those who have oppressed God's people will face the wrath of God if they don't repent of their sins and trust him. We have to recognize that this would have been very comforting for the original hearers or readers of this letter. For they're facing this very form of oppression and persecution. Friends, patience only makes sense when we rest in the justice of Almighty God. But let's think about this patience for a minute. We tend to think of patience as being very passive. It's like just twiddling our thumb, just kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen. That's not what James has in mind. Verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. This was active patience. What did the prophets do in the face of wickedness and oppression that they witnessed happening? They cried out against it. They proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the truth. Most of us aren't facing significant oppression or persecution for our faith. Yet many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. And one day we might. Are we to simply be doormats? No, we patiently endure while proclaiming the unchanging truths of God's word. James takes his challenge a step further in verse 8 when he says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This means having a steady resolve. It's commitment in your mind about what is true and right and good. It's being unwilling to compromise the truth no matter what pressures may come socially politically, culturally. In verse 11, James calls his readers to remain steadfast or to persevere. This means staying the course. It means following Jesus no matter what happens, even when it's hard and especially when it's hard. James concludes this section by saying in verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath. And that seems like a strange point after talking about being patient and 
persevering. What's he talking about? Well, this seems to connect back up to the propensity of some to take matters into their own hands to promote violence. And he's saying, you know, taking an oath would be in a way of promising to do this your own. And James is saying, no, this isn't how believers are to act. Friends, patient endurance is hard. It takes the Holy Spirit's work in your heart to be able to live like this when you face oppression or when other trials come. Sometimes you may just feel like you're barely holding on with the trials that you're facing. A motivational speaker told of a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston. The pilot, Henry Dempsey, heard an unusual noise near the rear of his small aircraft. And he turned controls over to his co-pilot and went to check out what had happened. As he reached the tail section of the plane, the plane hit an air pocket and he was thrown backwards against the door. He quickly discovered the source of the mysterious noise. The rear door had not been latched properly but prior to takeoff and it flew open. He was instantly sucked out of the plane. The co-pilot, seeing the red light that indicated an open door, radioed to the nearest airport requesting emergency landing and told them that the pilot had fallen out of the plane and asked for a helicopter search over that part of the ocean. After the plane landed, they found Henry Dempsey holding on to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. Somehow he had caught that ladder and held on for 10 minutes while the plane flew at 200 miles an hour at an altitude of 4,000 feet. It took airport personnel several minutes to pry his fingers off of the ladder. Things in life may feel turbulent, the motivational speaker said, and you may not feel like holding on. But have you considered the alternative? We would all like to think that we could pull a Henry Dempsey and just grit it out, just hold on in the face of the trials that we face. But the reality is we can't. Try as we might, we let go all the time. We can't persevere on our own, but there's hope because we have a God who preserves us. We might not hold on, but God holds on to us. Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How are we enabled to patiently endure? It's because God preserves us, because God holds on to us. And James says in verse 11, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel right there. That is the God of the Bible. And that can be your God if you don't know him. Trust him. And if you do, then rest in knowing that he is compassionate and merciful. Back in 2002, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her home. Nine months later, police found her not too far, a town just a few miles over, walking in broad daylight with her two captors. Her recovery was hailed as a miracle, but folks began to notice there was a problem, especially parents of older kids realized something had happened to Elizabeth. 
A 14-year-old who has enough liberty to walk the streets also can call out for help, but she didn't. She didn't run to the police officer for help. No, the officer supported her and arrested her, actually saved her. And many wondered, why? Why did she not run away? When Elizabeth's father appeared on TV, you could see a similar uh, perplexity in him. Yet heartfelt joy ruled every word, every gesture. His daughter was home. The emotions of love filled his face and voiced his voice, infused his voice. However bewildering her behavior was, he loved his child. Friends, God is the same way with us. Our behavior at times doesn't make sense. And God, we think of maybe as just shaking his head. But he's not. He says, no. I'm full of compassion and mercy. I love you. So no matter what hardships you face, rest in Jesus. Know that God's love for you in Christ is perfect. Patiently persevere for God's glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess that so often we abuse the wealth that you've given us. We don't use it for your glory, for your kingdom. Instead, we can be greedy. At times, we might even steal. We may oppress others. We don't even realize it. Lord, we live luxuriously, self-indulgently, and sometimes can lead to significant harm for others. Lord, forgive us of that. Lord, other times, we are the victims of abuse or oppression or just suffering in a broken, fallen, and sinful world. Lord, help us to patiently endure, resting in you and your love. Lord, we praise you that you are merciful and compassionate. Give us strength in you. Give us hope in the finished work of Christ. Father, enable us to live for your glory as your followers. Forgive us where we fall woefully short of you. Lord, we thank you for how you're at work in our church, in our community, Lord, for the ways that you are doing far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, would you continue to do great things? Lord, would you use us for your good purposes to spread the good news of the gospel here in Rock Hill and all around the world? Lord, give us eyes to see what you're doing and give us a desire to be a part of it. Lord, we pray that many would come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for our children and young people that you would watch over them, protect them, keep them healthy, and Lord, protect their souls. Lord, we pray for our pulpit nominating committee. We pray that you would bless their work as they continue searching for the next senior pastor of this church. Lord, give them diligence, give them endurance, give them unity. Grow their dependence upon you, Lord. Grow their faith in this time and use them. Lord, prepare us for who you're calling to be the next pastor. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling, those that are grieving, those that are ill. Lord, we do pray for Sharon Neely that she would give the doctors wisdom that her dizziness would be resolved and she'd be able to go home soon. I want to pray for Kerry Harper with his difficulties breathing this morning, Lord. Pray that he would get the treatment he needs. And for Sarah, that you give her peace as she cares for him and as well as she awaits surgery later this week. 
Lord, I pray for our Spain mission team that you bless their labors in Madrid. Would you bring children to the VBS? Would those families get connected to Juan Carlos and Ruth and to the church? And would that church plant grow and prosper for your glory? Lord, for others who are sick and struggling, we pray that you would bring healing. Lord, for many unspoken requests, we ask for peace and for comfort and hope. Lord, we ask that you would work powerfully in all the ways that only you can. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We do want to affirm our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. You'll find them printed in your bulletin. Please stand if you're able. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our hymn of dedication is number seven in your black folder, As the Deer, number seven.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how you alone are the real joy giver. Lord, would we take that to heart? Would we really believe that our joy is found only in you? And would it be a joy for us to give back to you? Lord, would you use our wealth for your purposes, for the spread of your kingdom? Or take these gifts and use them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.